Little girls murdered in a schoolhouse in peace-loving Amish country. In a culture that disdains the wrath of God, the feeling of justice and the need for payment that is aroused in us over the death of these little girls gives us a taste of how the God of the universe feels toward our sin, whether it be murder that flows from hate, the injustice that results from greed, or the disease and pain that result from sexual immorality. How can a holy, righteous God forgive wicked sinners? Our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, points us to the Epistle to the Romans as the Apostle Paul answers these questions. Lancaster, Pennsylvania is one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's one of the places Mary and I like to go more than any other. Uh, Several years ago, we had a friend that was getting married right in the heart of Lancaster. The name of the towns even sound like heaven. Places like Paradise and Ephrata, and it's like you're living right in the Holy Land and, and uh, these beautiful fields. You've all seen pictures of it, like you've seen the movie The Witness. You've seen these incredible, beautiful fields, probably the most beautiful fields in all the world. And that's why this week has been a really, really tough week for me. Because earlier in the week, as a nation, we were shocked. Tragically, The reality of the matter is that we watch it on TV so much, we see it in so much movies, it's possible that you're not shocked anymore. And I find that's one of the things that I wrestle with. But one of the things that really touched me this week is here's a place that's supposed to look like heaven. You've got this little one-room schoolhouse. You have the Amish people. And just so you'll know a little bit of the background, the Amish people are those that uh, are a branch of the Mennonite people Uh, There's a fellow named Simon Menno that in Europe, uh, in an area that uh, Ed Murray, one of our missionaries, has ministered in. Simon Menno got a hold of what you believe in, that, that you're saved by grace, that you're saved by trusting in Christ. And Simon Menno began to preach that in there in Central Europe. And the Lord powerfully worked in his life. It caused a whole movement, and some of those people came right here to Pennsylvania. They settled down, and the Amish people are a group of those Mennonites that believed, let's just freeze time. We're not going to use the you know, gas engine power. We're not going to use electricity. We're going to have buggies and all of that. We're going to just freeze time, freeze the dress, and that's the thinking because they wanted to separate from the world, and their idea of separating from the world was to uh, just to stop right where they were, not go any further in technology, and that was their heart. And some of you might have gone like on a tourist thing to see that. And that was the idea, so you'll understand the background for that. They also are pacifists. For example, one day I was there uh, in a church right in the heart of Lancaster, and they were asking me a bunch of questions. And the first question, they, a guy raised his hand and said, Dave, if you were pastoring our church before World War II started, uh, would you have encouraged us to go and serve? And man alive, that was a tough one. Here I am right in the middle of pacifist territory. They even speak German and uh, kind of a brand of German. And here I am right in the middle of all that. It was really a tough, tough answer to that question. Well, that'll give you the background of what happened early this week. Here's this right in the heart of pacifism. People don't believe in retaliation. Here are these beautiful little girls. And this fellow, this milkman goes into that one-room schoolhouse, tells all the teachers to leave. He tells all of the boys to leave. 
And here we have these 10 little girls that are right there. And he has planned this. He has ammunition to handle a siege. This fella has brought stuff to molest the girls. And that is as dark and as evil as it can get. The police surround the place, and they are going to storm it. And he breaks. This guy just goes crazy, Charles Roberts IV. And he begins shooting the little girls, and five little girls lost their lives. Now, I want you to imagine, I have a little girl. How many of you have little girls? When all of you daddies, especially all the daddies, raise their hand. I want you to imagine how you would feel when you got the word. Can you imagine what it would have been like to get the word that your little girl at school had just been brutally murdered? How do you think you would feel? Well, I'll tell you how I would feel. I would want to go to that schoolhouse and I would be so angry because of what Charles Roberts did to my little girl that I would want to just tear him limb to limb. And I think all of you in this audience this morning can begin to understand what it means for there to be wrath against sin. We're going to be talking about the book of Romans today, and I think that in our culture, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1, and I personally believe that the Apostle Paul begins the gospel at a place that is hardly ever the beginning place in our culture today. In fact, I personally believe that one of the forgotten realities of God's character is God's wrath, even as a preacher. I find that I'm getting ready. This has been, you know, it's a sleepless night, and it's really hard for me to think in terms of what I really need to teach you all. Because our culture says that you need to be happy, that you need to believe that you're okay. Yet we teach you from the time you're a little kid in school that you're basically good. And the message of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans just cuts right across where our culture is. But I really believe that it's time, and we're living in a culture where little girls get blown into eternity, and then it gets forgotten because a congressman has been sending illicit emails out to young page boys. That's the culture we live in. And then the real debate in our culture is not about us down on our knees and crying out, like, how could our nation ever have gotten this bad that it doesn't even doesn't even hurt us anymore hardly. It just goes right by another story. How in the world does our culture get that evil that all we do is debate about the implications of this congressman's immorality upon the, the election in November? That's where we are as a nation. I want you to realize, like right here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, every single day somebody gets murdered. As we look across our nation, and we look across our world, we live in a culture like in, in the Sudan, in Darfur, thousands of people are just being mowed down. And the United Nations talks about it, but doesn't do anything about it. 800,000 Rwandans were murdered quicker than any other genocide ever taken place. And, the, and the, the world said this will never happen again, and it is. It's happening right now as we speak. And one of the forgotten things in our culture is God's wrath. 
I want you to know that God is looking at every single one of our lives, and without Christ, God is angry. And what I want you to realize is that God has the feeling that a daddy has. Why is a daddy angry when he just found out that his girl had been brutally murdered? She's, look, she's never going to live. You know, she was this innocent little girl, and she's blown into eternity, and, and it'll never be made right. How could it be made right in this life? That's what a father's thinking. She know, he, he knows what his wife is going to do, that probably the rest of her life she'll never get over that grief. That murderous violence has incredible, incredible consequences, and it just is the exact opposite of everything that our Heavenly Daddy is about. And that's why God gets angry. But as you turn to Romans chapter 1, the the Apostle Paul says that God's wrath is not just against a murderer like that took place in uh, Quarryville, Pennsylvania. God's wrath is against your sin and my sin. And that's the thing that's hard for us to understand. Every single time that we gossip, God's wrath is being poured out against that because we're destroying somebody when we do that. When we slander somebody... That hurts their whole reputation. Their reputation might not ever be able to get put back together again. When as a husband, we get mad, and suddenly we just say dirty things against our wife, or we curse her out and use dirty language. God's wrath boils against that. Because that comes from deep darkness. That's what destroys homes. That's what destroys love. And that's what Romans wants you to get, to, grip, to get a grip on. As Paul begins this letter where he's trying to lay a foundation, he wants the Romans to become a launching pad for him to reach the farthest corners of the Roman Empire. He wants to be able to reach Spain. And he's really concerned about doing that. And he wants a group of people that it really grips them what this good news is about. And in order to understand how good the good news is, you need to understand how bad the bad news is about our condition. And that's why the Apostle Paul begins. Look what it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God, even saying those words, it's old-fashioned, the wrath of God. It makes you think of Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And, and, and that's what a terrible thing to tell people. And that's why we need to remember. I want you to remember the picture in your mind of getting the news that sin, thou shalt not murder, is one of God's commands. And when you get the word that your child has been murdered, there's going to be tremendous wrath that wells up in you, and that's not wrong. There's a cry for justice. There's a cry that even when he took his own life, there's a cry that he should have had to face a trial. He should have had to face his peers and all the people around him. It's like it's, it's something that cries out in our mind. It, it was too easy just for him to blow himself away. And that's all the expression in a much deeper level. Our anger when we really see the consequences of sin is only a little bit of the pure, holy, righteous anger that God has against sin. He says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Right now, it's being revealed from heaven against all godlessness, against all wickedness of men, because they hold down the truth. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. What can be known about God is just plain to them. What I want to understand is that it's not really hard to know who God is. 
it's not really hard for us to know that God is there. And that's a, mis- that's a, a total miscalculation in the Western culture today. We have an idea that we're here by chance. We're here just by probabilities. Who knows whether or not there's a God that's really there? And I want you to know that that is a lie. Every one of you deep in your soul know that there's a personal God. You know that, there's, that you're, he's not an eagle. You know that he's not a tree. You know that he's not a lizard. You know that he's not another man. What the book of of Romans is saying is that you're part of a human race that deep in its soul knows that there's a personal God who's all-powerful and who is a personal being that has a conscience that has right and wrong, deeply communicating to you as a person. And we hold that down in our soul. That's how bad we are. We hold down the quiet voice of God speaking to reveal himself to us. That's what Paul is claiming. He's saying we suppress that, we hold it down. And that yields God letting us do our thing, which is one of God's kindnesses and grace because God doesn't force you. God doesn't make you like a honeybee that you're locked into a behavior pattern. Instead, the book of Romans is saying that God lets you do what your sinful desires want to do. You start living for yourself. You start living for personal pleasure. And the Apostle Paul goes through a whole list of what unbelieving people don't do. What he does in chapter 1 is he has a bunch of pagan people, a bunch of pagan idolaters. And these people go to temples where they do worship these little idols of little serpents, and they, and they worship frogs. Like down in Egypt, they worship frogs and all kinds of things in the ancient world. And the Apostle Paul lived in this Roman Greek world where everything had become a great big melting pot. He speaks about homosexuality in the book of Romans. And he said that the men, instead of having passion for their wives, they started having passion for one another. He spoke about women that instead of having the natural use of their husbands, they lusted after one another. And our culture is definitely there. In fact, I could be thrown in jail, possibly, the way that our culture is going, for saying what I just said, because I just denied someone their civil rights, because that's a debate in our culture. And I want you to understand that that shows you how bad our culture is. As a pastor-teacher, as I work with people and counsel with people, It's not a very abnormal thing to be praying with grandparents and brokenhearted families because a wife has left her husband. And she's not left her husband for a man. She left her husband for a woman. And it's not just men that are involved in homosexuality, but it's blatant in our culture among the women as well. And we go out during the week, and Oprah can discuss it. Everything is just fine. And what I want to share with you, it isn't fine. It's like a medical doctor, the holy medical doctor of the universe, looks at what's happening in our culture, and he says, it's not fine. People's lives are being blown apart. Little children aren't protected. Little children aren't given the guidance so that they can grow up with stability and be able to find the right partner for themselves through the power of God. Everything, the family is just coming apart. And then people have to find other connections. And then violence begins to break out. Just ask any policeman in our group, and, you, and they'll tell you that what I'm telling you is the truth. 
The Apostle Paul said that God's wrath is poured out. And it's easy for us this morning to focus on something like homosexuality because usually that's one of those sins that doesn't really permeate most of our lives. But I want you to know the Apostle Paul, at the end of this chapter, he talks about a lot more than homosexuality. Look what he says in verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. They became filled with every kind of wickedness. They became filled with evil, with greed. They lived just for materialism. They just lived to to get the next thing that they wanted. They were full of envy. They were full of murder. There's what I've been talking about in Lancaster. They were filled with strife. So in their homes, they were constantly fighting. They were speaking angry words to one another. They were filled with strife. They lied to each other. They had malice. They wanted to hurt one another. They were gossipers, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent new ways of doing evil, and they disobey their parents. Rebellion against parents is part of this whole list. It says they are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, very things, but they also approve those who practice them. If that's not a diagnosis of our time, there it is. Isn't it? And I want you to realize, like, as I read this passage, and as we are here together this Sunday, we need to sit under our Father and let us say, my wrath, a just holy sense of I've got to make this right. I need to discipline this. I need to punish it. It's very much a part of the book of Romans. Now, some of you are sitting there going, say, well, Dave, man, homosexuality, that's a million miles away. And I've never cussed in my whole life. In fact, I'm the most gentle person. I, I make Mr. Rogers looks like he's a little uppity. Well, that's what chapter 2 is about. Turn to chapter 2. Because chapter 1 is about a bunch of pagans. They're the real raw ones. They're the ones that are out there, you know, rebelling against God, cursing him, doing it openly. Chapter 2 is about all of us, the religious ones, the ones that go to church on Sunday, the ones that are really into doing the religious thing. And what Paul does in chapter 2 is he raises questions that you attack these people and you claim that you have the law, you have the moral commandments. As he moves through the chapter, he eventually ends up with really focusing on the Jewish people that the Apostle Paul was one of them and he was raised with them. And the Apostle Paul says, you're all prideful about the fact that you have the law and you have the commandments. But what Paul just puts his finger on is all of us that say, oh yeah, you need to obey God's law. You need to obey God's principle. We disobey ourselves. In chapter 2, the Apostle Paul attacks our self-righteousness. And what I'd like every one of us to do, it's really important, every single one of us need to stop and face ourselves this morning. What I find in counseling with people is you are all experts on what your husband is doing wrong. And you're experts on what your wife is doing wrong. You kids are experts on what your mom and dad aren't doing. And you students are really experts on what your teachers aren't doing. And the teachers are really experts on what the students aren't doing. The hardest thing in the world is to get someone to stop looking out there and look right here. And I want you this morning to look right here. 
because you're not going to ever find God's good news until you really face what's going on inside of you. And one of the terrible realities of our evil that's inside of us is we always look at the evil. Like when I tell you about a murderer in Lancaster, you're ready to kill him. And you all say that I could never do that. But you'll leave here and get working on a car engine and you'll explode and curse out your son and not think there's any connection. There is. Because anger leads to murder. And you just murdered some of your son's personality. And as a dad, I've done that. When I've gotten ticked working on an engine. And when I lose it and I become impatient. And words come out of my mouth when my boys were just little boys that would tear them apart. And I had to face the fact that anger, that fury, that cursing just bubbles up inside of me, which shows that deep in my soul, there's a really perverted, twisted, dirty fountain. My person deep inside of me, my core, isn't good. And that's why the Apostle Paul, as he moves into chapter 3, he brings together, he has the, he has the pagans, sinners in chapter 1, he has the self-righteous religious sinners in chapter 2, and if you look at chapter 3, verse 10, he says this, there is no one righteous, No one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. So I want all of you to know that the Bible teaches that as you go out this week, people aren't really seeking God. They end up with false gods. We're in a really bad condition. We don't understand. We don't seek God. We've all turned away. We become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Our throats are like open graves. Our tongues practice lying. Anybody lied here this week? Anybody find that as soon as the pressure's on that you tell a lie? The poison of vipers is in your lips. Just get a bunch of schoolgirls that, uh, you know, want to ostracize somebody. And we could talk about adults doing that as well. It says their feet are swift to shed blood. There's our murder in Lancaster. Ruin and misery marked their ways, and the way of peace they did not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. The book of Proverbs teaches that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and we've forgotten it. Now, what I want you to get a hold of this morning is the Apostle Paul comes to a conclusion. And he comes to that conclusion right at the end of this little section in verse 20. It says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, because... By the law, we become conscious of sin. As you leave this auditorium today, in fact, many of you sitting there, it's deeply ingrained in your soul that you're a good person and that if you'll only work harder, you can work this out. And you can be the glorious person that God wants you to be. And you're told that, you're going to be told that in a million different ways. That if you can only tap into the good that's within, you'll be okay. And you'll go through life judging other people because you'll constantly compare yourself to other people. What I want you to know the Apostle Paul is saying, and this is one of the most incredibly powerful thoughts that he ever communicated, is that every single one of us, myself included, we are murderous, violent, evil, deceitful, dark, deserving sinners. And we deserve to be totally separated from God who is holy and righteous forever and ever and ever. 
And you hardly ever hear that, but it's the truth. There's a righteous, holy God that when I sin, he sees all the terrible consequences that flow from my sin. And he says, David, just like that murder in Pennsylvania, as the righteous judge of the universe, when I look at your life, when I look at your heart, when I look at what you do, I'm going to have to send you away forever and ever and ever. And I say, I'm going to try harder the next time. Can you imagine if that man didn't kill himself and the father comes running in and he says to the father, I promise I will never shoot another little girl. You think that's going to cover it? No way. Not going to cover And that's what I want you to feel. The book of Romans is telling us a message that needs to thunder out through our personal lives and thunder through our society and through our world. Because most of you aren't convinced that we even have very good news because the people you're trying to reach aren't that bad. They're all just fine, and they're not just fine. The Bible's saying that no one, no one in all the world is ever going to stand before God and say, I obeyed the law. So let me in. I was a good, religious, church-going person. I lived a pretty good life and grade everything on the curve, and I'll, you'll be all right. Now, everything I've said so far is pretty bad news, but there's some incredible good news, some incredible living water. So look at the next verse, because this is where everything changes. We've been talking about God's wrath against sin and God's anger, and you're not going to appreciate the incredible good news you have until you really face, and I face, what's going on inside. But look what verse 21. I love this, but now, but now, but now, I can say that again. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to the law too, to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, in our his story, this has been God's message all along that he's been telling us that we can be saved by faith. Look what he says. There's a righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Let me read that again. There is a righteousness that comes from God. In other words, righteousness is, is being right with God, having a new character, having a new person. Instead of being this unrighteous person that I've been talking to you about all this morning, instead of being that unrighteous, sinful person, the book of Romans is saying that there's another righteousness that God's character, that God's holiness and his justice, he can create a new righteousness and he can create it inside of you and he tells you that it's not going to come because you're religious, because you obey rules. Look what he said. It said it's going to come through faith in Jesus Christ, through trust, by depending on Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what we've been talking about all morning. We're all in the same boat. But we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed during the Old Testament period beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the heartbeat of the book of Romans. You've got to get this. The Apostle Paul, first of all, says that you can be justified freely by his grace. What does it, what does it mean to be justified? It's a big word. What does it mean to be justified? This is what it means. 
It means that you're a condemned criminal and you deserve the penalty. The judge of the universe is furious at you for what he did. And as you're in the courtrooms and you've done this heinous crime, you're in that courtroom and the gavel comes down guilty. You're not justified. You're not free of of guilt. You're not free from your sin. You deserve to pay it. What justified means for Paul is Jesus stands up in the courtroom and he says, wait a minute. And he walks forward to the head of the courtroom and he says, judge, you are also my father. And you and I made a plan. And the Son of God holds up his hands in the courtroom of heaven. And he and his Father and the Holy Spirit look at those nail prints. And they look at you and they say, your penalty for sin was totally paid. You are guilty, but your guilt has already been paid. And Jesus looks at you and all he says that you have to do is say, I'll depend upon you. I'll trust you. I'll admit that I am that criminal. I am that condemned sinner. And I will admit that there's nothing I can do to receive that justification. And you just open your heart and what it means to be justified in the Apostle Paul's thinking is that the gravel comes down again and God the Father, God the Father declares that you are free to go. You are forgiven. You are justified. In this court, the eternal court, you have been declared free to go, forgiven. The Apostle Paul also says in this verse that we have that forgiveness based upon the redemption. Jesus bought you. You were in a slave condition. You were in this horrible, depraved, sinful, lost condition. And Jesus rescued you out of that, that terrible condition. He redeemed you. He bought you out of slavery is the picture the apostle uses there when he says through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So justified represents a courtroom. Redemption represents a slave market where you're owned by sin and you're controlled by sin and you're completely uh, mastered by it. And Jesus pays the bill to set you free, which was to give his life for you. And that's the picture you need to think of redemption. The third picture that we'll close with is this sacrifice of atonement. He says God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And he demonstrated his justice in doing this. This is an incredible picture. In the Old Testament, in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, when the priest once a year went to the Holy of Holies, he went in on the Day of Atonement, And he had to bring the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And he brings that blood in. And what he does in the Holy of Holies, in the Holy of Holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant. 
The Ark of the Covenant, you've all seen pictures of it in Sunday school. If you haven't, I'll describe it for you. It's kind of like a golden chest. It's a wooden chest and then covered over with gold. And it has a lid on it. And you can open the lid. And inside that, that chest, that Ark of the Covenant, are the Ten Commandments. And that represents God's law, God's standard, God's righteousness. And the mercy seat was the lid that came over that law. And then the Shekinah glory, like when the priest went in, the Shekinah glory hovered above that mercy seat. And they used to tie a rope onto the priest because if the Lord didn't accept the blood of the sacrifice, then they would have to pull him out because the man would die because the wrath of God is poured out against all unrighteousness. And the priest is representing the people before this righteous, holy God that delivered the Ten Commandments. And what it means that Jesus was offered as a sacrifice of atonement, it means that when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, when he said it is finished, he went into the ultimate temple. He went into God's presence. And instead of using the blood of a lamb, he anointed the mercy seat with his own blood. It's like he climbed up and up on the altar and he allowed himself to be sacrificed. And he shed his blood which was the plan from the beginning of time, what we learned in his story. That's why the Lord told Abraham to slay his son Isaac, why he stopped him. So we, as human beings, we begin to think, the day is coming when a son will sacrifice himself for the guilty. And what it means to be a born-again believer, what it means to be someone that's really trusted in Jesus, it means that you've come to the place in your life where you totally rest in the fact that Jesus became that sacrifice that covered your sin. And now the way is open to intimacy with God. The way is open to experience that Shekinah glory, to have the Holy Spirit live right inside of you. And that's why when we get to the end of the book of Romans, Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says this. He says, I beseech you therefore, my brothers and sisters... Based upon the mercies of God, based upon the fact that God has provided this incredible gift, and based upon the fact that Christ rose again from the dead, so he's alive, the book of Romans says, I want all of those that trust in Jesus, I want them to see themselves as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is its reasonable purpose. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I've been taught from the time I was a little kid that this is another decision you make, and this is when you decide to go to the mission field. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. He goes on in Romans 12 to talk about all of your giftedness and all the abilities the Holy Spirit has given you. What he's telling you to present yourself as a living sacrifice is you, you never leave the foundation of what happened to you when you were saved. The Apostle Paul is saying that you need to see yourself joined with Christ in his death. You see yourself united with him, so close that when he died, you died. When he rose again, you rose again. 
And so in your daily life, you're a living sacrifice. You've sacrificed your old way of life. You've sacrificed the life that deserved God's wrath. And now you're a living sacrifice that now is free to use resurrection power to express your life for Jesus. What I want to make absolutely sure, it's possible that some of you haven't really come to know Jesus like that. It's possible that, you know, you, you've been coming, you, you know, you liked hearing the teaching. But the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is just laying out the core of everything he believes. And so I want every one of you today, it's really important, you need to think of, of in your back in your life, do you know for sure that you've come to a time when you admitted that you deserved the wrath of God? That you admitted that he deserved to punish you. That you saw his justice in doing that. Paul tells us we need to change our mind. Outside of Jesus, our mind justifies ourselves. We turn away from what's right. Paul is saying we need to come to the place in our life where we let the Lord Jesus change our thinking around and we accept the fact that we're sinners. In other words, what I was talking about earlier, we really look into ourselves and see what's really there. So that's the very first thing. Have you really come to the time in your life where you admitted that you were a sinner? Second of all, have you come to that place in your life that you totally rest your forgiveness on Jesus' taking the punishment for you. Jesus died so that you could be set free. And then, finally, have you recognized that Jesus rose again from the dead? The whole book of Romans doesn't talk just about a sacrifice Christ. It talks about a alive Christ, a resurrected Christ, who wants to come to live in your life. And all you need to do to have Jesus come to live inside of you is to trust him. Are you absolutely sure that you've received this bad news that yields ultimate good news that the book of Romans is talking about? You say, Dave, I'm really not sure. All you need to do is right there where you're sitting and say, Dear Lord Jesus, as Dave was speaking to us about your wrath and the anger of God that's revealed against sin, I can... In my own heart, I feel guilty. And I do know that I'm a sinner. And then there's the incredible good news. Will you say, Lord Jesus, you died on the cross and took the penalty, the death sentence, the death punishment that I deserved. You took it for me. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for doing that. I receive the payment for my sin that you provided for me on Calvary. And then we say, Lord Jesus, I believe that on the third day, as a proof that your Father accepted the payment that you made on Calvary, you rose again from the dead. And so, Jesus, I believe that you rose again from the dead, and I'm trusting you to give me eternal life, that resurrection life right now. Just like you depend upon a physician when he tells you that you have a malignancy and he tells you a treatment, what it means to trust, what it means to believe, what it means to have faith 
is that when they come to this ultimate eternal reality in our lives, it means that we trust the great physician Jesus. We trust his diagnosis. We trust his cure. And then we totally rest in the fact that he'll come to live in our life. If you prayed with me just now, and you really connected with Jesus, which you will because he's right here with us, then in that moment of time, you can rest assured that Jesus came to live inside of your life. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, came right into your life, and he's going to help you to grow. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.